This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hey everyone, it's the first Sunday of summer. Welcome, Triple R listeners. I'm so excited. I love summer more than anything. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and we have a packed show for you this morning. First up, we're joined by Jill Stark, a senior writer for The Age and the author of High Sobriety, a book about Australia's drinking culture and how she survived a year without booze. Maybe Bron from Radio Marinara could have a uh, read of that book because based on her show earlier at Radio Marinara, Bron, sounds like you had a big night last night. So maybe you should have a read of it. Hey, and thanks to the Marinara crew, by the way. That was a fantastic show. But Jill is here to chat about health in the media, the difference between activism and journalism, and anything else that takes her fancy. And we've also got a number of our regular panellists. In fact, I can see three in front of me. Firstly, Dr Eva Green. Evergreen. Nature's answer to superperson. That's, by the way, a gender-neutral version of superwoman or superman. I couldn't decide. She swoops down from the heights to rescue the environment with a psychological twist. That's because she's a psychologist. That is fantastic. It's good to see you, Eva. Um, and later in the show, Eva is going to tell us some of her psychological magic science stuff about how to give gifts. Mm. It's going to be exciting. And Capri's here. Dr Capri, she is our family GP with a razor-sharp wit and a laser-sharp intellect. Did you like the way I did that? Razor and laser. Laser sharper than razor. <laughs> Capri has party drugs in her site, which were in the paper again this morning, so it's quite topical. She's going to ask whether we should be offering on-site testing. And finally, of our panellists, we have our budding journalist and sleuth. I don't know why I said sleuth. Master Doyle, it's his name. He's not really a sleuth. He's a journalist. He is in the studio. He is going to take a peek at how mainstream media influences the public's view of health. So we've got lots to talk about. Okay, everyone jump in. Say hello first, Jill. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And you live nearby, so you just popped around the corner. I do. I, I may have driven here, which is not very good for the environment. Oh, you dirty <laughs> cheat. Uh, Eva's not going to be happy. And uh, you're okay, because I checked, you know, I, I um, cyber-stalked you on Facebook this morning, and I could see you're at, like, an age Christmas party, standing <laughs> oh, no. in front of a wind machine, dancing on a dance floor. There was about, I don't know, there was about 50 photos. <laughs> you know, yeah, so, yeah, it was quite the thing when we discovered the wind machine. And, and then I, you know, thought I was like on the sort of deck of Titanic with my hair blowing in the breeze. And, <laughs> and I then, would have gone for it too. Yeah, we should get one in the studio. Although there's already a lot of hot air. Oh no, the <laughs> gags are flying already. Um, that wasn't a gag. Um, so, but welcome aboard. Thanks very much for having me. It's nice to be back at Triple R. It's a fun place. What about the um, you two sharing a microphone? I'm just missing out on the, this wind machine idea for Christmas parties. Oh, I think no. that's genius. Well, we had our Christmas party on Friday. Did you? Uh, and no wind machine. Oh, I actually don't know if it was a wind machine. It may have just been a fan that we... <laughs> 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 hey, wait a second. I think a fan is another name for a wind machine. <laughs> that I think it. Hey, guess what? I've got a wind machine at home next to my couch for hot days. I'm going to turn it on when I get home today because it's it was, 30 It was degrees. very close to being a workplace incident of my hair getting stuck in it. But, you know, it worked out okay. I like smoke machines at parties, personally. What about you, Capri? Well, I don't think either I would be particularly good with, at a wind, with a wind machine because we've both got very short hair. Oh, oh, yeah. That's yeah. It's a non-event. That's so true. I guess it depends on what we were wearing. And young Master Doyle. What about you? Do, no wind machine for you. What about Christmas parties? You've been, you know, you're the youngest member of the group today. I say with your fresh face for radio listeners out there who can't see it. Yeah, I've uh, I've been to one or two Christmas parties in my time. Is that it? As, one or for two as, for as long as I've had a working life. Yeah, uh, I'm invited to another one this year, so watch this space. But Good. Um, 
Last Christmas party I went to uh, was a in my retail job, and we played lawn bowls. So uh, <laughs> perhaps uh, <laughs> perhaps I'm uh, peeking into the future for what uh, Christmas parties will be like 60 years from now. Oh no, no, lawn bowls is all the rage now. You go, I in fact I cycle past the couple of lawn bowls places on my way on to work often, and. Um, Coming home, there is nearly always a party. They're nearly always hipsters. They, you know, they'd be triple R listeners. In fact, it's, in fact, it's, they're probably at a long balls place right now. Beards flowing in the wind machine and just having a ball. Hey, um, you know what? You know, it just reminds me of this. You know, topic without any notice whatsoever. You know, Christmas parties now, we have to send out memos at the start of every Christmas season now at the hospital saying, remember Christmas parties are an extension of the workplace. Mm. Behave yourself. We've lost mm. two in three employees since in my time at the hospital from incidents at Christmas parties. That's because um, you people in the hospital system are crazy drunk, so... Well, you know... <laughs> we don't have the you know, wind you machine. You talk a good we, yeah. game about reducing yeah. alcohol harm, but you're all on it. <laughs> we talk and talk, and the moment we get there, out come the cigarettes. <laughs> oh, it's party time. But, yeah, so oh it's really, so it really, you know, it always freaks me out. You know, I just say that you remind me, Dor, because, you know, you're at the start of your career. And, I you know, me, yes. you know, like <laughs> getting towards the end, probably, they'll probably sack me after this year's Christmas party. <laughs> you know, you really, it's really, a, it's a funny process, you know, you change your view about them over the years. I, I now see them as an extension of work very much. I used to go to them as, I can't wait to get um, slightly inebriated <laughs> and let my hair down. What smooth there is save, do it all very smooth. Hey, uh, why don't we jump straight into some um, business then? Okay, what do you got for us, Doyle? You're on the mic first up. Well, uh, it's something that uh, may play into the topic that you will be speaking about soon, but I thought I'd focus on an issue that's relevant to both areas of radiotherapy's interest, medicine and the media. More specifically, the role the media has in people's comprehension of health and medicine. Now, there are two areas I'd like to discuss as part of this, Doolittle. The first comes from an example from October 13, when the ABC aired a program called Catalyst. ABC or SBS? ABC. Was it? Sorry. I yeah, the, so the program catalyst on the ABC. Yep. Uh, it aired a program on statins, uh, which are a class of drugs that lower blood cholesterol. And in the program, uh, catalyst reporters questioned the link between cholesterol and heart disease, and therefore that uh, the suggested benefits of statins uh, had been overstated and the harms underplayed. Um, now, the impacts of this program were measured in July of this year by a study from the University of Sydney, which found that in the eight months following the program, more than 60,000 Australians cut back on or mm. stopped taking the drugs altogether. Mm. Uh, and they said as a result of this, there could be between 1,500 and up to 3,000 preventable and potentially fatal heart attacks and strokes. So uh, this is, uh, in this case, it would seem that uh, people have taken medical reporting not as reporting but as actual serious advice, and thus it's an example of how trusting viewers can be of medical journalism and make decisions based on this that may not necessarily be in the interests of their health. So this, to me, raises the question, do medical journalists have a greater duty of care to their audience because they may be the only source of health information that people get other than from their doctors. Mm. Mm-hmm. Tricky question. What, is, what are your thoughts, Mr Health Professional? Well, there's everyone here. Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts on this. I think that, you know, journalists and doctors have very different roles. And mm. as, uh, don't forget there's two sides to this coin. Doctors overstate medical 
evidence constantly. It drives me to distraction the number of times I see overstated stuff. So when it's overstated in the other direction, like sometimes when I see, say, the immunisation um, debate going one way with one group of people that's different to the scientists on the other side, I, and, the sci- and everyone gets mad at each other, I say, hey, well, you know, um, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. So it, it, it swings both ways is what I'm getting at. And the journalist sits in the middle and has to try and figure out what is the facts, what's the truth, and will also have a view themselves, and they have to represent that view. And the public... Um, and that is exactly as it should be. There should be attention. They shouldn't be in bed with each other. They shouldn't be representing the same views. So I don't have a problem with it, and I don't have a problem with every once in a while, people, if a, a show gets it wrong. Um, I, so, I, you know, as long as... Look, you know, you don't... There's... there's Boundaries. You don't want them to get it too wrong and state things that are patently wrong, but they're entitled to give opinions, and the public knows who they're getting their advice off. I was just thinking, and let's just call this responsibility. There's a, it's a three-way responsibility as well, because often on these programs like Catalyst, usually they do refer you back to seeking medical advice. They, they're not saying take our journalism as advice. They're quite usually quite clear, my understanding mm-hmm. is. Uh, and it's up to us as individuals as well to make decisions based on what we know, what our doctors are saying, and there may be a variety of opinions within the GP profession as well. I think in that case, though, what was so damaging about it was where the message was coming from, because it was the ABC, and it is such a a trusted broadcaster for many people. So you look at where the message is coming from, and perhaps if it's coming from, you know, a tabloid TV current affairs show, you, you wouldn't put so much stock into it but i think the the devastating impact that you just outlined there with the numbers of people that stopped taking those drugs was partly or largely to do with who was delivering the message having sorry capri you go there is a silver lining though it did um give people the opportunity to open dialogue with their doctors i had lots of patients coming in the following weeks and saying listen i watched the show what should i do and it made me revise you know which patients actually should still be on statins because there are a lot of people who actually don't need to be. So it actually gave the medical profession an opportunity to revise what they were doing and set up the dialogue with patients. I guess the danger was there were a lot of people who didn't have that dialogue. They just decided, based on the program, um, just to stop their medications. And that could that is uh, you know could be quite um, dangerous. I hear what you say. See, I, I didn't quite buy it. Now, I watched the program and I thought it was a load of crap. Don't get me wrong. They interviewed people on one extreme side of the um, equation. But having said that, it caused a furor. Is that the word? Furore. Furore. Yeah. I get confused. We've got two journalists. They can correct me. Um, but it did. And so I can't... Be- I honestly find it hard to believe someone said, I'm going to stop it having watched this program and I'm not going to read any newspaper. You know, it was, it was all over the shop. Actually, Steve, um, our health editor at the Sydney Morning Herald... Her, she's the health editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, and I think it was either her mother or father actually stopped taking their drugs. Just on the basis of the show. Because, again, I think it's because it's coming from the ABC, and I think as journalists, and when you were writing in health, it's a, you have a massive responsibility when you're putting stuff out there because people may look at it and go, well, this is gospel and this is, this is fact. And you, well, you're, you're trying to present facts as, as they are. But I think also, um, when we, like we, any story that we do, whether it's, it's questioning a certain health service or questioning um, the way things are run, you run the risk of people who are going to that service not trusting it. And so there's, there's a real kind of um, responsibility that we have. We should be reporting fearlessly, but at the same time, we need to be absolutely um, keep at the forefront of our minds the responsibility that we have to our readers and who are 
patients of yours who are going to take what we say very seriously. And there may be some people who are particularly vulnerable who, um, I'm just thinking of my own dad who must have watched that program because he did he did start talking to me about cholesterol and I, I ended up switching off because I thought it was a load of rubbish what he was saying. But, um, you know, he's someone who doesn't really believe in medicine and doesn't want med- mm. medical treatment. So mm. it was something that he really wanted to hear. Uh, and so when we hear something that we want to hear, we tend to believe it a lot more. True. Mm, true. But, you know, the, other, the, the only other thing, you know, I, I, is the medical profession's got to take some responsibility too. We oversold cholesterol and a number of things like that for about a decade and so when you get these shows it's a it's a it's in some ways a reaction to the same thing that had happened on the other side of the fence you know the um for years that everyone you know, basically pushing these drugs when the evidence wasn't as strong as people made out and then when the final evidence did come in oh well, it turned out we'd been we'd been overselling our medicine yet again some of that is to do with funding as well though isn't it because i think that i've been concerned for a while about the public health lobbies um and, and i've written written a book based on on some of these messages about drinking too much or, or whatever it may be but now it's like salt's going to kill you sugar mm. is the enemy yeah. you know everything uh, and a lot of these groups rely on funding from the government to continue sort of prevention campaigns which are really important but it's almost like we're looking for the new enemy everywhere yeah. we go mm. and, and really the the key message should be moderation not not sort of demonizing certain substances mm. or certain lifestyles i think um and that like you say all the time doctors can overstate things in order to suit a certain agenda or they to have to in, you know, they don't get, funding yeah, they, for research. They don't get funding unless they yeah. overstate it. If you get out there and say listen, the disease I want to talk about today it's pretty important. Look, not that many people have got it to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we're going pretty well in it. It's not that bad. We're pretty happy with where our treatment's at. Um, you, know, you won't even get I airplay. You mind you, you know, I, I've told this anecdote in the past, you know 15, 20 years ago when we started doing a lot of media and health related stuff, if you rang up certain newspapers, not the age I might say, of they would <laughs> say to you to your face, unless it's about baldness or obesity don't bother calling when you ring with the health yeah they love baldness any stories about baldness for males and any story about obesity um (laughs) that was fine otherwise don't whereas now it's almost the um you know the uh what show shows called neighbors what are they all called it's a soap soap opera it's a soap operaization that's a word i just invented um (laughs) of medicine you know every story has to have a pro and a kind of this i'm talking too much doyle what else you got well the other uh, aspect of uh health reporting that I think we should bring up in this debate is the effects of over-reporting. Uh, and a strong example there comes from uh, how the, in the past 12 months the mainstream media has basically reached saturation point in how much it has reported on ICE and the use of it in regional communities. I always feel like seeing ice, ice Baby the moment anyone <laughs> says Ice Baby. It just goes into my head. But so the impacts of this, I believe that the age Richard Baker and Nick McKenzie actually to a series titled The Ice Crisis, and that's frequently how it is now referred to in the mainstream media and by the Prime Minister Tony Abbott on August 13 when um, he announced a new ice task force. Would that be ex-Prime Minister, perhaps? Oh, yes. <laughs> Times, they are a-changing. And whenever um, I hear that, I feel like singing Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, as a result of um, all of this reporting, uh, the University of New South Wales found um, in September this year in a survey that around 80% of people overestimated the prevalence of ice use in Australia and that almost half the respondents believed that between 30 and 100% of Australians had used ice in their lifetime. 100%? Yeah, every single Australian. So essentially it's suggesting that uh, if uh, you focus too much on one health issue it can distort people's perception of how um, bad it is and also 
it can that can come at the expense of how serious other issues are. For example, analysis by the conversation the week after Mr Abbott launched the task force found that um, in Victoria there's an average of only 4.7 methamphetamine-related hospital admissions every day. There's 34 for alcohol. Mm. So which is the bigger issue, mm. but which is the one that's being reported on more by the media yep so that's i just thought that was another relevant thing the only thing i'd say to that is it's not that that is you know there's all these you know i like to think of them as natural conspiracies no one's actually getting back there and conspiring there's no one sitting around deciding this but a particular agenda suits a whole lot of people so the medical community certain elements of the medical community got right behind ice for good reason they wanted extra funding and you know they will use the funding for everything it doesn't matter what you come in the door with whatever addiction you come in with they'll help you so they jumped on the ice bandwagon the hospitals jumped on the ice bandwagon wagon through the emergencies departments because they wanted to get, again, they wanted to, you know, the emergency departments are all overrun and anything that can um, bring attention to the fact that they're overrun and that they need better support is a good thing. The governments are onto it because it's, you know, it was an important issue and they wanted to pick a nice tiny little health issue that they could fight. You know, well, they I mean, don't want to... I think it... We've talked about this many times before that the, the ICE crisis, as you say, um, is just one in a, a long history of crises around drugs. I interviewed Johan Harry, who's in the author of Chasing the Scream, the history of the drug war when he was out here a few months ago, and his book is fascinating, and it really looks at how hyped up the, the drug war has become, and, and ICE is no different to any, whether it was heroin, whether it was crack cocaine before it. There is, it's in the government's interests to scare the living daylights mm. out of parents and deflect mm. from what might be going on at the time, it was the collapse of the Abbott government, but let's have a $1 million job in a dealer hotline, which all the evidence said was completely the wrong mm. um, approach. Um, Steve, we've talked about this, sorry. Doolittle, I keep getting your name wrong. <laughs> so is my mother. <laughs> Everyone forgets me. I feel so insignificant. Um, when I wrote uh, Eyes of Bride, I talked about uh, a very senior person in the drug and alcohol sector who spoke to me off the record and said that he sat with a former Premier of this state and uh, announcing at a press conference a, a multi-million dollar package for ICE when he knew fine well that that wasn't where the problem was. But mm. he said, I took the money and we put it into alcohol prevention because yeah. that is where the greatest harm is caused. But like you say, the perception by the public, and it's not helped by hysterical media reporting, is that it's this huge problem. It's things like you're hearing ridiculous things like, oh, well, ice causes people to have superhuman strength. Now, back in the 19th century, people thought that gin could cause spontaneous combustion. It's the same, <laughs> yeah. it's the same hysteria that we've had over the years. Now, you know, gin can cause many things, mostly making you cry on the stairwell, um, <laughs> parties, but it's unlikely to make you burst into flames. I think yeah. we need to just really have a serious think about the around this drug and it goes everywhere even in the hospitals you hear you know, you'll sit in meeting after meeting with people saying what a big problem ice is and, yeah. and yet yeah. we will have seen 10 patients that morning who have alcohol problems mm. and someone saw a patient a week ago who was aggressive on ice mm. and it, it's just but and, and really what, what johan harry talks about is what underpins all of this is a lack of social connection a lack of human connection with people you can be drug affected with from all walks of life and people say well that must mean that you know ice can just grab you out of nowhere and you'll become an addict it comes from people having no purpose in their life whether they don't have whether they're lonely whether they're in poverty or disadvantage whether they have mental health problems mm. yep. this is what we need to look at not just blaming a drug for our own societal problems mm. very well said very well said hey do you want we're going to we've got a segue anyway into your topic um capri which is related should we say seg- we're going to do on-air production should we segue now 
Doyle, or do you want to finish up um, with some closing um, comments slash observations? Well, I was originally going to finish by saying that uh, there needs to be more responsibility in health journalists, but your point, Doolittle, that... Um, it's partly the medical community that needs to take responsibility as well sort of interests me. So perhaps in closing, the thing to really look at is the relationship between the health media and health professionals and uh, whether both of them need to take a greater level of responsibility in which, uh, which crises they uh, choose to emphasise and uh, how they communicate this to the public. Nicely said. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. We are going to have a quick chat about whether we should be testing party drugs at actual parties. Capri, yep. what do you got for us? Well, um, I'm talking about drug checking, as you just uh, described checking. it. And specifically, we're talking about um, drugs at music festivals. So it's quite a confined um, area of discussion. And basically what we're talking about is a system where you've got on-site labs basically to analyse drugs that people bring into music festivals. And yep. obviously it's very timely given the tragic death of two young people in the last week at the uh, Stereosonic Music Festivals, one in Sydney and one in Adelaide. So what do we mean by drug checking as i've said it means you know analyzing drugs that people have already the point here is that these uh, patrons of the festival have already brought the drugs in and intend to take them so we're not talking about encouraging people to take drugs we're not facilitating enabling what what these drug testing sites um strive to do is yep. provide um, these young people with the option of modifying their behaviour on site. So um, so basically they analyse their, um, their drugs for content, yep. contamination and potency, so to see whether what they know, basically to inform them about what they are taking. Yep. And then if they choose to take it based on that information, that's fine. Or, but, but maybe some of them might decide, well, hang on, I'm here to have fun. This actually might cause me more harm than the fun I intended to having, and maybe I won't take it. And, in fact, Zurich uh, is the sort of gold Zurich. standard... Zurich? What did yep. I say? Yep. No, I thought that's what you said. I'm just double-checking. Yeah, gold standard model where uh, these um, labs do exist across yep. uh, in um, festivals around Europe. Yeah, Northern Europe uh, has quite a few of them. Yeah, and Zurich is the gold standard. And what they found there was that a lot of people, a lot of these... Um, patrons do modify their behaviour, but at least two-thirds who were surveyed said that if they knew what was in it, they may well not take it. Um, And so that's quite powerful. And I think... Um, you know, obviously Australia is a bit behind in, in um, legislating and, and um, setting these um, sites up and there's a big uh, online um, uh, petition going on, the mother whose child died at the um, the one that in Melbourne. Um, Stereosonic. Yeah. Um, no, not Stereosonic, oh. the other one. Um, Oh, anyway, it doesn't... It's, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's going to be in Melbourne in, it in, in the someone new, died, obviously, in the new year. Not anyway, the mother of the guy who died in 2012 has set up an online petition trying mm. to get support, and there are already 30,000 signatories um, trying to support a lab being set up as a trial at this music festival in mm. Melbourne in the new year. Um, and, um, you know, obviously the government in their war against drugs uh, feel that if they support these kind of ventures, it's send, sending the wrong message. Um, I think we need a new message. We need a message mm. that we want these young people people have the opportunity to be um, informed and have the opportunity to modify their behaviour for their own safety, sort of empowering them with the information so that they are less likely to to be harmed as a result of their... And we know that this works. It's happening Mm. in Switzerland. It's happening in places 
all over the world. And I, I think that the just say no message is, has been an abject failure. Mm. And if you look at, I mean, Fiona Nash, the Assistant Minister for Health, announced, so she, in response to the head of the Geelong Ice Task Force suggesting that we decriminalise um, ice, and obviously there was a quite a hysterical reaction from certain sections of the media saying this is insane, um, Fiona Nash put out a press release saying that we will never legalize this evil drug you know again the language is is mm -hmm. somewhat over the top um we will never legalize this um evil drug because it's often laced with um battery acid and sulfuric acid well that's actually an argument for legalization because if you had it decriminalized and actually yeah, we're not talking about legalization at that point we're talking about just decriminalizing it people would know what is in the drugs that they're taking and surely we want to keep people alive like if that is the harm minimization approach works and i think that if parents were knew the evidence properly they would actually probably say well maybe we need a different approach because right now we're fundamentally failing this um, war on drugs mm. it seems to me that the, none of the approaches are mutually exclusive though mm. there's the pro Inhibition approaches, trying to stop it, drugs are bad, keep them out of the country. There's the medical approaches, offering really good services. There's the social approaches, harm minimisation, or harm minimisation crosses both. But there's all the social approaches, education, what you were talking about earlier, Jill, about integration in communities, etc., etc. Mm. And they all need to come together and get the right balance. Yeah. Um, Personally, I'm all for medicalisation, harm minimisation. You know, I, my son's just gone to school. He's, I sat them down, him and his mates, before they got on. I said, guys, here's my message. Don't take drugs, but if you do, start at a really low dose. Make sure someone's sober. If anything goes wrong, um, call an ambulance. Don't worry about getting in trouble, etc., etc. Yes. Good, basic harm minimisation. And these, I've read lots of stuff about these um these testing labs in Northern Europe, they've been studied and they've... Um, in and Portugal, I mean, yeah. you know, Richard Di Natale, the Greens leader, mm. has just been over there and he's probably yeah, one he of the look, few people he? in our parliament is actually talking sense around yeah. this. Mm. And, and oh, to be fair, there's actually p people from cross parties, even the Liberal Party, Sharon Stone, now saying we really need to take a different approach because, mm. and I think there's this real fear from politicians, from parents, that if we talk about harm minimisation, we're somehow telling our kids to go out and get off their face and take drugs. It's They're doing it anyway. It's, yes, a, really, it's a very fear-based kind of model it's it's almost like we need to change our narrative or that the socially constructed kind of story that we're telling the war story the enemy victim story mm. is not working it's not compatible with the model that you're talking about dr capri mm. uh, and, and rather the model that dr doolittle's talking about is around concern and care for each other Mm. Yeah, I'm not demon, demonising yeah. people and saying, well, if you're an addict, you're something. You're kind of this othering of mm. of people who take drugs, as if they're well, they're they're everyone. Mm. Yes, they're, yeah. they're our, our kids and our sisters. They're us. They're, you know, it's yeah. sort of they're it's not criminals. No, they use drugs. They're not drug addicts. And they're not criminals. A lot and they of people don't use punished. them quite safely, just yes. like some people use alcohol safely, and some people use cigarettes. Oh, they don't get, I mean, I get mad. I think a lot of the police are really sick. And <clears> Ken Lay, um, you know, the outgoing chief commissioner, had said that what we have done to this point the law and order approach is not worked and i'm quite pleased to see that malcolm turnbull seems to be taking a different mm. approach to tony abbott he's there's a big announcement today on drug rehabilitation money and that's what's in the past they've gone for scare tactics a lot of money being put into um ice you know will drive mm. you mad and people scratching their faces off and all this sort of nonsense like rather than actually put money into a vastly underfunded sector that desperately needs money for beds uh, and for rehab. Hey. 
I was just going to... Oh, sorry, you go... Uh, just, just very quickly linking this in, because it's interesting to... I, we've got a media expert here wondering what the role of the media is with perpetuating these very high drama stories, because the po- po- certain politicians pick up on that language, then it gets fed back into the media. Uh, what role... Yeah, I mean... I sort of feel very strongly about this. I think that the way that drugs are reported in this country, well, across the world, really, but is just so hysterical. Mm. And there's no doubt, and it's not to underplay the people who are having their lives ruined mm. from drug addiction or people who are dying, but really what we've done has failed. And I think that when I wrote this piece with Johan Harry, and it, it got a, a good reaction from our readers, I guess, but there's um, elements from my competitors over at the Herald Sun who were people, other journalists over there, just having a go at us, saying that we were somehow... Um, you know, glamorising drugs or somehow underplaying the, the harm that's caused by them. Is it not at all? Um, really, what are we doing so far? How is that working? It's every country that has tried what we're doing has mm. found drug addiction rates and death have gone up. It's mm. playing it under, the, under the same rhetoric as war, isn't it? To yeah. attack back you, it's, and it's, a different this, approach. This, we're, we're in a war. I mean, the war on terror doesn't work. If, if the war on drugs doesn't work. We need to stop seeing it as an us and them issue. Mm. Let me just finish this um, segment with the good news bit, though. The way these um, labs work, I've seen them on doc- docos and stuff. People at parties buy their drugs. They don't know what's in the drugs, so they take it up to the lab. They scratch a little bit off. They test it with a mass spectrometer. They tell you what's in it about 10 minutes later. You get to decide, make an informed decision. But here's some good news. Um, I went to this conference recently where they showed the latest mass spectrometers that can do this. They're handheld, half the size of a mobile phone. They're, in fact, they look like a little clicker that opens your garage sort of thing. You point it just like a laser pointer mm, at the wow. substance and it will um, look at the substance, tell you basically what's in it. It sends it up into the cloud, into a Google-like thing and, um, and does a search on that particular um, chemical structure and it can tell you roughly what is in your mm. thing on the spot. So in five, and these are already available. I've, I saw them demonstrated in a video. So soon we'll all have our own little mass spectrometers in our pocket and we'll just go, oh, what am I buying here? Cool, that's pasta. I might eat it. Oh, that's ecstasy. I might save that for after dinner. Although one of the benefits of the drug testing sites, it's saying that, that while they're waiting for the result, there's an opportunity for dialogue and discussion mm. about the drug taking and that yeah, at no time do the, do the patrons ever get the idea that it's safe to take that the drug is safe um, and that you know the idea is that no drug taking is safe but they they just enable them an opportunity to have some education mm. about what they're doing as well and then they can decide what having a drug counsellor there to talk about that would probably be quite helpful and what's happening at the moment when you have these festivals so policed that young people will see the sniffer dogs and they're necking all the pills at once yeah you know and, and, how is, and then we wonder why they're dying i mean it's just a ludicrous approach and the law and order approach clearly needs to change. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We've been chatting to you the whole show so far, Jill, but this is the official bit where we say, hey, Jill, now we're going to interview you, even though we've been going the whole time. Um, As I said earlier in the show, you're a senior writer for The Sunday Age and you're also an author and you've written a book called High Sobriety, a book about Australia's drinking culture and how you survived a year without booze. And that obviously is what transitioned you into being a bit of an activist and and especially um, initially around um, drugs and alcohol and, and all your passionate views. So seeing we've already covered a lot of drug and alcohol, let's just talk a little bit about that, you know, fine, let's start the ball rolling with that fine line. How do you distinguish between your work as a journalist and your work as an activist? I think it's really difficult these days. I think the line's a lot more grey than it used to be um, because, you know, we're all on Twitter and we all have a, a very public kind of 
outfacing um, profile. Um, and yeah, starting with, with the book, I was reporting on alcohol, and then when I talked about my own experiences, obviously I had very strong views on the alcohol industry's role in mm. in our drinking culture, and you know, to the point now where they, I got a LinkedIn. Um, a LinkedIn suggested job that I apply for at Carlton United Breweries as their <laughs> head of communications. Like, oh, Who's oh, writing those sure. algorithms at LinkedIn? I don't know if they're kind of really going to want me on yeah. their team, or maybe maybe they do. Maybe they want to get me on their team so that I stop saying things about So for high sobriety then, because you, you did a series of articles, and you, in fact you won some awards for them, didn't you, around drugs and alcohol, yeah. and that's what got you interested. Yeah. So What's your current passion, though? Because oh, I know you've moved. I know you still talk a lot about drugs and alcohol, but we've already covered that. I so. do. So I'm, I've got a very strong interest in social justice. I always have. I think yep. my, my mum and dad would say, growing up in Scotland, I was very much um, militant anti-Thatcher kind of uh, <laughs> young girl based on my mum's pathological hatred for... Uh, the Iron Lady. Um, but yeah, I've really felt that sort of strong sense of, of social justice. And so I'm really interested in LGBTI issues. I think that, that marriage equality is, you know, pro- probably one of the biggest civil rights movements of my generation. And I think that until we have equality under the law for, for all Australians, then yep. we're really not the democracy that we say we Can are. Can you say what LGBTI is? Even though I think everyone knows, but just Lesbian it's gay. my job as a host. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex. There's yep. Sometimes there's a Q on the end, sometimes there's an yep. A on the end. I, I, I think we'll go with LGBTI for just now. But I, I think, it, like we were saying before, it sort of started out in the health area and I was looking at um, groups like Beyond Blue which have since done great work around um, combating homophobia but at the time like 2008-2009 this was a group that has very high um, disproportionately high levels of um, suicide and self-harm and mental health problems as a result largely of discrimination and Beyond Blue at the time were doing very little actually nothing um, to support that community so I sort of lobbied them and pushed a lot and did a lot of work around that and that got me into sort of looking at this area I then sort of looking at other areas where there really is no work being done and the AFL being a prime example or they've done such great work with racism and that sort of thing and I, I was constantly hearing language being used by commentators and players that was just really homophobic and so I started writing that I wrote about um, uh, Jason Ball who's the first Australian rules player to come out um, as gay and since then uh, with the work that he's done he's taken it all the way to the AFL and they're now going to have, have a Pride game the first yeah. ever Pride mm. game the AFL are, are they? When, yeah, when's next that? season between Sydney and St Kilda it's really been pushed by Matt Finnis from St Kilda he's basing it on the Pride Cup which was um, Jason's team Yarra Glen out in uh, the Air Valley did a Pride Cup two years in a row now it was, they painted the 50 metre lines rainbow colours the teams wore rainbow jumpers there was a lot of education for the coaches the players um, it had a huge impact on that local community so Matt Finnis from St Kilda has taken that and he's going to have it at a national level now. So it's really impressive, like how, you know, something like that, and you say, well, it's grassroots and it's grown to something so big. And so for me as a journalist, have I become an activist? Possibly. Um, I, I don't know. I was having this discussion with one of my editors the other day. Well, I was going to say, do you, do you cop it? Because I would imagine, you know, there, there's all these dimensions upon which you work, you know, but that's one of them, you know, when you're crossing a line from reporting 
Well, you know, and well, look, some newspapers are very much part of the story. The tabloids put themselves front well, and centre in the yeah, stories. Yeah, I mean, I think that we do campaign as journalists, and often, like, I think some of the best journalism is campaigning journalism. I mean, you look at Joanne McCarthy from the Newcastle Herald. I mean, she basically campaigned on child abuse single-handedly and forced a royal commission. Mm. Um, now, would anyone argue that she crossed a line there? I think, mm. I think for me, I feel like I'm on the right side of history when yep. it comes to uh, fighting for people who are oppressed. It doesn't... I, I don't think I'm in bed with tobacco companies or, or anything like mm. that. So, but yeah, of course. And it seems to me your best journalism would come from areas you're passionate about and yeah. you believe in. Yeah. You do, you know, if, if you're passionate about it, you believe in it. I think there, I do have to be careful that I'm, you know, not a cheerleader for certain causes. But when you believe in those causes quite strongly, and and the majority of your readers and the general public does, then is that a bad thing? Um, yeah, it's. I, I mean, for example, the AFL story. Like Jason is now a close friend of mine, and so we don't. I don't really write about him anymore. He's now um, gone into politics. He's running for the Greens and Higgins. And so I haven't written anything about him since he's gone into politics in that sphere. Um, so that's where we, the, the line is kind of drawn. And I always chat to my editor every story that I do to make sure that, you know, she, I can obviously keep an eye on my own judgment, but she will be the overseer of that as well. So I, yep. I think, you know, like you say, it's an area that you're passionate about. You should, you should run with it. Um, if I was a political journalist, I wouldn't, I think it would be different, but I'm not. I'm, I'm a social affairs kind of mm. writer. You know, and, you know, you st- the reason we um, read so many of your stories, of course, is because you did a lot of health journalism for a long time. Yeah. Um, so just changing the subject a little. So what do you think, you know, health journalism, what do you think, my gripe is often, you know, hear me whinging about it on this show all the time, you know, is the way medical people, health people in general, present themselves in the media and sometimes getting the balance wrong. What, and, of course, Master Doyle spoke about some of these issues earlier. What are you, your thoughts on how health journalism is done in Australia and where we, you know, the good and the bad? Well, it's so refreshing to be here with um, medical professionals who are so open and, um, and human, no, no offence, but there's a lot of doctors <laughs> who are very, um, you know, sort of buttoned up and, and not, not so willing to, to give of themselves and I understand that because there's obviously a trust issue there that, that perhaps some some uh, clinicians have been misrepresented in the media um, but it really I think we've had this conversation before that you, you and I get on very well, you tell me all sorts of things you shouldn't tell me <laughs> Don't throw that on me He, says, he tells those things to everybody yeah, <laughs> My problem, I cannot stop talking but, um, I think though a lot of people are very conflicted because one, they're nervous I mean, I'm interested to hear what you guys, um, Eva and um, Capri you think because I think a lot of people are nervous in the media, for one. For two, they've often got multiple masters. They might be working at a public hospital, so they might, there's things they, you know, they're well, public they're just, employees. They're they're, well, the time, there's yeah. rules. They have yeah. quite clearly rules. When you work in a government job, there's rules about what you can and can't say, and you should be going through your media department, and there's good reasons for those rules. I'm not mm. criticising them, but sometimes they can go too far. Um, also, often, you know, they've got an agenda they're pushing, and so, you know, they're balancing everything. It's hard, I think. Well, it's funny, Eva and I were talking about this just before the show. Then I get quite nervous coming onto this program and, and partly it's because I'm not, you know, I don't feel comfortable in this role, but also I feel like I'm a little bit of a representative of my my uh, specialty, which is general practice, and I feel like I'm speaking for all... And I'm clearly I'm not. I'm, I'm using what my sort of background but also my own personality, but I feel like I need to be representative of, of general practitioners uh, overall, and I think I find that to be pressure and responsibility. Capri, who's your imagined audience in your head? When you're speaking, who do you think you're going to get criticism from? I'm thinking my husband is at home thinking, <laughs> how many ums and ahs has she said today? That's what I'm thinking mainly. But no, I think it's, it's really our 
our um, peer group. Because I think part of the problem is a lot of people think that their audience is the other professionals in their area. Yeah. And so they think they have to, I have to say stuff that represents psychiatry. Mm. You have to say stuff that represents general practice. The reality is that mostly the audience isn't. And in fact, mm. you know... Well, the, yeah, I mean, yeah. If, you want it, and if you want your message to get to the general public, then you need to talk to them as as if they're your patient, not not in sort of um, very bureaucratic language. I think that's often the problem. I will interview doctors and professors, and I'll say, "Can you, can you, okay, can you talk to me as if I'm a, a lay person? Well, I am a lay person, or and then they'll still be using words with Latin derivatives, and, and yeah. then I'll say, "Oh, can you talk to me like I'm a five year old?" And I still don't understand. So I say, "Well, talk to me like I'm your cat." You know, like that's kind of, you need to break it down. If, if and I when they start rubbing your hair, yeah. you, you get a little bit. You think they're inappropriate. My theory is that always being that if I can't understand the story, I need to be able to explain it to my Absolutely. readers. So I need yeah. the doctor to explain it to me in a way that I can explain it to readers. And I think that's an important part of it. This is an area that I think health professionals could learn a lot from is storytelling. Yes. Absolutely. You know, it's so powerful. And being able to share stories and use stories and use metaphors for healing and oh, um, communicating. That is such a good point. I, I've, all the people I really am impressed with in the medical field or any, you know, who um, do well in the media, they turn everything into a wonderful story. And they stand up there and they'll often stare at the audience and they'll begin with something personal. And then I love it. Storytelling is what it's all about. Mm. You've just hit the nail on the head on another key point, though, which is getting personal. Because I think some health professionals fear that being personal is not professional they confuse the two when you can show something of yourself Mm. uh, in a very appropriate and boundaried way in order again to communicate and connect because that's how for for me i think the the strongest stories are personal stories because it's about empathy Mm. and it's about the reader connecting with that human story and saying oh that could be me or that could be my son or that could be my friend Mm. um so yeah when doctors do that it's the same as any kind of storytelling like Mm. you say that Mm. that people really feel a connection to the story and it's it's surprising how many doctors think that they're going to be thrown under the bus by the journalist if they Mm. if they reveal a bit of themselves but yeah yeah. well i think that's Look, I'm, I'm often scared. I, I, I check everything I say normally because of that very reason. I think we are. We, and I've, I have got in trouble once. In fact, you were involved, Jill, now that I remember. <laughs> oh, here's a story. Oh, I had this, oh, look, I'll just tell it incredibly quickly. But I had this, um, Jill had rung up about, um, did I have any comment on ECT and what were my thoughts? And everyone in the world knows my ECT thoughts on ECT. Electroconvulsive therapy that, I'm, you know, I have a view that it shouldn't be done involuntarily and it's done a little bit too much for reasons that aren't always clinical. And, I, and there's a whole lot of people who are very smart... In fact, way smarter than me, who disagree with me. Hats off, they give their opinion. And um, and I'd given this opinion, but I said, oh, you know, and just use me as background because, um, you know, I didn't want to get myself in trouble. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I was rushing off to my son's school play. He was playing Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz in an all-boys school. Playing your son. <laughs> and I was as stressed as anything because I was wondering how it was going to go. And uh, Jill rang and said, words to the effect of, no one wants to go on record with the alternative view. A lot of people are going on. This is my memory. It might be quite wrong. And I said, okay, use me. And But I forgot to say... Don't, you know, just use me as my name and not, psychiatrist yeah, not yeah. representing the Alfred. And then after he hit the play, oh, you know, I calmed down and it had gone well. My son sang, son sang beautifully. <laughs> A round of applause, everyone. And uh, I thought, oh, I probably should let the hospital know. So I rang the hospital up and they just wanted to kill me. You can't say that. And it caused, and they were right. They were right. I should not mm. have gone in under my name. But, mm. you know, I was, what can I say? I was stressed. My son was playing Dorothy mm. in front of 400 <laughs> um, adults at an all-boys school <laughs> with a reputation for bullying. Mm. Uh, 
you know, I was a little bit nervous. I wasn't thinking about the newspapers anyway. That's a very common story, though. The fear of getting into trouble, the fear of making a mistake, the Mm. fear of being reprimanded, of being seen Mm. as incompetent. There are so it's it's fear-driven behaviour, and and it's particularly with with public hospitals. So the public affairs departments of major hospitals in this state are are very paranoid, and I mean, they're there's almost essentially corporations. You know that they're they're there to. To, pr- to protect the um, corporate image mm. of the organisation. It's interesting. And I, see, I don't feel that at all. No. Because I, I don't feel like I need to be careful. Uh, I just want it to be accurate mm. and responsible. That's what I feel. Because I'm not in, in, in that kind of... Yeah. In fairness to the public hospitals, though, a lot of these hospitals, as well as having a massive political profile, they're raising, like, some of them, like Royal Children's, are raising, you know, I don't know, $100 million mm. a year. Mm. They're, pr- you know, the things that go out in the media under their banner are important. And so I get why they're... I try and work yeah. with the media departments very carefully because I don't want to stuff up their messages. But at the same time, I have to have the right... Because I only work part-time. I have to have the right to say things. So I need to distinguish when I'm saying, you know, that I'm my yeah. title is working at a particular place versus my title but is just Dr. Doolittle. Frustratingly, Doodle. though, for a lot of journalists, that the there are some really great stories within those public hospitals that aren't being told because yes. they're not fitting in with a certain, you know, Good Friday appeal, miracle baby kind of nice page three picture kind of brief that they have there's some really important interesting work going on in some of these Mm -hmm. hospitals and you the only way that i get those stories told is to go to the clinicians themselves and hope that they will take a punt and not have to run everything through the public affairs department because for me it's not my responsibility to call corporate affairs every time I want to run a story. If a doctor wants to talk to me, then no, I, will, I will absolutely. that. Yeah. So doctors, it's the clinician's responsibility, yeah. if yeah. anyone's. Three, triple, ah. Let me tell you about a sensitive Santa. I just want to tell you about something because on the show in about three weeks, on the 20th of December, we're interviewing the people from this organisation, but their organisation is operating in the next week or two. So rather than telling you about them and telling you about their event in retrospect, in three weeks' time, I'm telling you now. Sensitive Santa, it's, a, it's for children on the autism spectrum um, for them to have the chance to meet a sensitive Santa at, uh, in an environment that's sensory-friendly. And essentially, this is run by the Span Community House. Span is S-P-A-N. I'm reading this off tiny writing on my phone. And it's running over the next, uh, over four days this week. Thursday the 10th, then Friday the 11th, 12th and 13th. So it finishes next Sunday. And it runs most of the days. And you have to make a booking. They're essential. I'm going to put the details up on our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R. But essentially, they say for you to call Colleen or Sarah, and I'm going to read out the number so get your pen, 9480 one three six four. The font on my phone is so tiny, I almost need laser surgery to read it. So sensitive sound, if you've got kids who are on the autism spectrum and you want to know about that, jump on our Facebook page or alternatively just ring that number I just said. Hey, uh, it is Christmas coming up or the festive season to be non-denominational. The festive season, is that the correct thing? Sure. And I'm so non-denominational. I'm just remembering actually now, uh, but we, this a few years ago, didn't, didn't you and I work on a story about the yeah. psychological trauma of Christmas? Did I? I, I, do, I do Christmas stories every year. Sometimes it's the benefit of gifts. Sometimes it's the trauma of Christmas. Yeah, Sometimes my... it's how to engage with families. How to deal with divorce at time of Christmas. Yeah, I, love Christmas I think it was stories. one of those, like, of those. how to deal with your yeah. drunk uncle. and stuff Yeah, like I love that, drunk uncles. Yeah. I've become one, though. Um, <laughs> Eva, you've got some stories for I us. I do indeed. And, and this is because partly I get quite stressed around buying gifts for Christmas. 
I've got a lot of nieces and nephews and uh, kids always have so much. I mean, let's face it, they're just like unwrapping the, the presents and they're on to the next one before they, you know, get to enjoy what they've already been given. And then there's parents who've accumulated decades worth of stuff. So... I wanted to um, think about what kind of gifts are the best gifts to give. And thankfully, Dana Linden from the Wall Street Journal has collected some psychological research, and so I thought it would be a bit of fun to share this as a bit of a pop quiz. Mm. Oh, I love a quiz. And we've got four minutes. It's going to be a quick pop quiz. So it's going to be a top top, four top tips. Do we get to go to schoolies after this exam? No. Oh, oh Every time I have an creepy. exam, I expect to go on holidays. <laughs> you mean toys? I like that you think it's an exam. Hopefully you're not going to be traumatised. Okay, okay. So uh, what what is the psychology behind giving better gifts? So if you want your partner to feel closer to you, should you give them a present that reflects you or them? Who's gone first? I reckon a, a gift that reflects them. Me too. <gasps> I agree. I'm going to go the opposite than just to be a contrary bastard. (laughs) Well, this research says both givers and receivers report greater feelings of closeness to their gift when the gift reflects the giver. Mm. Interesting. Which is, well, it's true. I've received a few. My my dad gives a lot of uh, interesting presents and I love them because it reflects something of himself. Well, Hawthorne Football Club memberships for all my friends this (laughs) year. Yeah, like Hawthorne, need more money. <laughs> so, I, th- I thought it was going to be one of those answers where both were true, you know, because you're a psychologist and everyone has to win. Oh, look. look. I'm so glad it wasn't. We, we, haven't, we haven't done a, a thorough literature review no. on this one. This is, <laughs> this is just from one study. But thinking about dating, is anyone here dating? You're not dating, you're not dating. Are you dating, Jill? No. Okay, well, I date we my might TV. have to pop this one to the listeners. When dating, and this is for same-sex relationships, uh, so I apologise to the LGBTI. Uh, who who would feel closer to their partner if they receive a terrible gift, the male or the female? Oh, okay. So the male or the female who's going to feel close closer? Closer. So feel, receive a terrible gift. That's a, like double negative. Yeah. I know. So, so who's going to be that. further away? That's too, okay. If you receive a, <laughs> I can't even think my way through <laughs> this one. Would, if you get a the, terrible would, gift, would so the, say someone gives me a terrible gift, and what's the question? Would the male so they give me a Hawthorne membership? Say. Yeah. So would your outlook on the relationship be worse? Or, for instance, if you gave your partner a terrible gift, would her outlook on the relationship be worse? I'm going... So it's a him or her. It's a mm. sexism. It's a, it is. I'm going the woman's going to be more... <laughs> I knew it. I don't I really know. I don't really understand. We all going to well, blame the others. Appar- apparently, a woman's outlook on the relationship's future was completely impervious to receiving a, a terrible gift. I don't know about Good that, but my ex-partner gift. once bought me a rice cooker for Christmas and that was pretty and much the end ex. of the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just want to buy my own gift and I, he can wrap it. Well, there, there you go. And, well that's you're exactly so, what I've done this you're Christmas. You're such face a it. practical person. That's why you're a GP. Okay, we've got, we've got one oh, yeah, minute rice. to get through two more top tips. Is more better? Would you value one big present or would you prefer a big present with a few complimentary presents? I go more uh, for a complimentary. I like complimentary. Yeah, lots all of, of little, little gifts. Yeah, I, I'm the same. I thought this one was a, a no-brainer. I like lots of gifts. Give me a big one, little ones. I like an experience. Apparently, unconsciously or subconsciously, we average the individual components when forming the impression of the overall bundle. So <laughs> yeah. we we value it less if there's bundles. So you know, more is better can actually backfire. There you go. Mm. Nice. Which is are, interesting. These are all and, tips okay, I'm going to use to get rid of. Last a but not least, <laughs> do people like receiving charity cards? Oh, no, I don't. No. <laughs> I think they're just... 
I just, I've got a real gripe against charity cards. Don't get me started. We haven't got enough time. As a gift, I think no. Okay. If you want to well, give to charity, exactly. give, you yourself. give to charity. Yes. If you want oh, me great. to give to charity, ah. give me the money and I'll decide what I do with you it. You have hit the nail on the head. We should just be researching you, Dr. Doolittle. So it's, it's actually very mixed. Spouses and distant friends, not so much appreciate it, but close friends didn't mind. And parents of children actually appreciate it more. But the top tip is if you're going down this path, choose one that allows the recipients to choose their own charity. So, done. Right up to the minute. We've got 20 seconds left to say thank you, Jill Stark, for coming in from The Age Senior Writer, who's also written High Sobriety. If you haven't read it, go out and buy it and look for her next book, which is bound to be coming out sooner or later, although I forgot to ask about it. Thanks, Eva Green. <laughs> Thanks, um, Dr Capri. Um, you listen to Radiotherapy. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.